Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Before we start the show, I want to let you know that this episode contains descriptions of violence against dragons and zombies, as well as details about the inner workings of computer displays and TV screens that some listeners may find extremely nerdy. Okay, you've been warned. The future is shaped by technology, but technology is shaped by us. You're listening to Soonish. I'm Wade Roush. I love trying out new technologies, but I'm not as much of a gadget geek as you might think. I kind of go by the principle of good enough. My laptop is about three years old, and it's at the point where the battery runs out really fast. But it's good enough. My TV is a high-definition LCD model that I bought in 2007. It doesn't have 4K resolution like the newest sets, but whatever, it's good enough. I never listen to my CDs anymore. I get all my music in compressed formats like MP3 and AAC. MP3s don't sound as clear as CDs, but they take up a lot less bandwidth and memory on my devices. So they're good enough. And as it turns out, about 10 years ago, there was a little rash of stories in the media about the so-called good enough revolution. Wired Magazine ran a piece in 2009 that looked at the popularity of technologies like MP3 and concluded that people were increasingly okay with, quote, flexibility over high fidelity, convenience over features, quick and dirty over slow and polished, unquote. And I think that's still true, up to a point. But there's an interesting thing about technology. The ceiling is always getting higher, meaning there's always going to be a new gadget that's faster and smarter and brighter than the one you've got. But the floor keeps getting higher too. I mean, I'm happy with my MP3s, but if you forced me to listen to everything on a scratchy old Victrola, I'd be pretty grumpy. Because I know what kind of sound quality is possible, and I know that when I listen to an MP3, I'm not sacrificing all that much. My point is, what's acceptable to consumers at the low end is defined by what's available at the high end. On today's show, we're going to take a very deep dive into the technology of displays, those glowing rectangles that we spend so much of our lives staring at. I'm going to tell you about a trip I took to California to see a new display that absolutely raises the ceiling. And my bet is, it'll also end up raising the floor for all of us, and not just in our offices, but also in our living rooms. It could even change our expectations about what's possible on a digital screen. All I know is that by the time I get back from this trip, my old high-definition TV from 2007 was looking very not good enough. The story starts a couple of months ago, when I flew out to San Jose. That's where Apple was holding its annual Worldwide Developers Conference, or WWDC for short. It's one of the biggest Apple media events of the year, and it's usually the place where the company announces new products and shares details about its latest operating system upgrades. It's also a chance for Apple engineers who design Macs and iPhones and iPads to meet with all the people who write apps for those devices, or at least with 6,000 of them. That's how many people fit into the main hall at the San Jose Convention Center for the big opening keynote, hosted by CEO Tim Cook. Good morning, and welcome to WWDC 2019. This year, Apple invited me to attend the keynote and meet with one of the speakers. Her name is Colleen Novielli. She works for the Mac product marketing team, and she was there to take the lid off a secret Apple project to build a new type of display. 
Here's some tape from Colleen's part of the presentation. So our goal, it was simple. Make a display that expertly delivers every feature the pros have asked for. It's a 32-inch LCD display with over 20 million pixels. An incredible 1 million to 1 contrast ratio. The images this display produces are truly stunning. And with these capabilities, we have taken this way beyond high dynamic range. This is extreme dynamic range, or XDR. And so we call this display the Pro Display XDR. Now, you just heard a bunch of tech jargon, like high dynamic range and a million to one contrast ratio. And don't worry, I'm going to come back and explain each of those terms. But long story short, Apple said it plans to start selling the Pro Display XDR in the fall of 2019 with a price tag of $5,000. That's obviously a lot more than you or I would spend on a desktop monitor. But as the name suggests, the Pro Display XDR is really meant for pros, as in movie producers, graphic designers, and photographers. And believe it or not, for people in those businesses, five grand is a huge bargain. That's because they're used to buying so-called reference monitors that can cost thirty dollars or $40,000. After the keynote, I got to see the Apple display up close, right alongside several of those reference monitors. And honestly, the pictures on the Pro Display XDR were sharper, brighter, and more vivid. So it raises the ceiling on what's possible if you've got $5,000 to spend. But like I said, it also raises the floor for the rest of us. Because once you get a chance to look at one of these new displays in the Apple Store, it's going to be way harder to go back to your old one. You know, it's like when you go from a manual garage door opener to uh, an automatic one, uh, you notice if you have to go backwards and lift up the garage door again. That's Michael Isnardi. He's a distinguished computer scientist at SRI International in Princeton, New Jersey. This is, this is more subtle, but people are subconsciously seeing a better picture and will we'll generally notice if we take a step backwards. So I think it is going to set, set a new normal or a new bar, expectation bar in their, in their mind. Isnardi is one of the nation's pioneering engineers in the area of satellite TV, high-definition TV, and video compression. And he says that, in his experience, even the fanciest new display technology eventually trickles down to the mass market. I, I would think that that all the things that are in the Apple Pro Display XDR that make it unique right now are going to eventually become standard features five to ten years from now and, and displays that are going to be at Best Buy or whatever <laughs> whatever replaces Best Buy down, down the road for ordinary consumers. And that's why I think this news from Apple is worth talking about. At WWDC, I think I got a glimpse of the kinds of displays that we'll all be using in the future. And I think they could totally reset our expectations about the quality of the images that we see in our everyday lives. We've lived through these resets before. Photography, for example, forced painters away from literal representations and toward impressionism and abstraction. Movies made still photography look static. Color film made the black and white past look antique. High definition flat panel displays made our old standard definition CRT TVs look grainy. And it turns out there may be more revolutions to come. So to understand exactly how our glowing rectangles are evolving, you have to know exactly what makes one display better than the previous one. And you start by counting how many pixels it's got and how densely they're packed. If you've ever seen a painting by Georges Seurat, then you know about pointillism, 
where the painter puts down nothing but millions of tiny dots. And then your eyes do the rest of the work to blend the dots together into a unified picture. Well, that's how an LCD screen works too, except that the pixels are smaller and there are more of them. A high definition screen, like my old 2007 job, has 1,920 pixels horizontally and 1,080 pixels vertically. Hey Siri, what's 1,920 times 1,080? 1,920 times 1,080 is 2,073,600. Okay, so a high-definition screen has roughly 2 million pixels altogether, or 2 megapixels. The more pixels a screen has, the better, up to a certain point. But what's just as important is how closely those pixels are packed together. When I get really close to my old HDTV, I can see the individual pixels, because they're spaced out at a roomy 70 pixels per inch. The screen on Apple's first iPhone in 2007 had fewer pixels than my TV, but they were packed a lot closer, at about 160 pixels per inch. And over the years, Apple and its manufacturing partners have figured out how to make LCD screens with more and more pixels at higher and higher density. Apple crossed an important threshold in 2010 with the iPhone 4. That was the first device to have what Apple called a retina screen. On a retina display, the pixels are so small that from a normal viewing distance of a foot or more, you can't see them with the naked eye. At that point, the image on the screen looks just as sharp and smooth as it would if it were printed on a piece of paper. Fast forward to 2019 and the new Pro Display XDR. And with two 18 pixels per inch, it's a 6K Retina display. It's got 20 megapixels, and they're crammed in at 218 pixels to the inch. That's 10 times more pixels than my TV has, at three times the density which is remarkable because it makes the picture so sharp. But the raw pixel count of a display is only part of the story. Today, electronic stores sell lots of 4K TVs, which have 4,000 pixels horizontally. And they're even starting to sell 8K TVs. But Michael Isnardi says that beyond a certain point, adding more pixels is just overkill. I think we're eventually going to stop with the resolution increase. I think it's going to be um, a long time before we start seeing uh, a lot of 8K televisions in, in the market, and I think we're going to sort of plateau at that, that point. Because once you're sitting, you know, 8 to 10 feet from a television, even a 65-inch television, uh, you're, you're not going to really notice the difference between 4K and 8K. The Pro Display XDR is a 6K screen, halfway between 4K and 8K. So yeah, it has plenty of pixels, but that's just the start. You really don't want the image on the screen to be drowned out by the ambient light in your office or your living room. So it helps if a display can make the bright parts of an image really bright. Hardware makers quantify screen brightness using a unit called nits. And no, those don't have anything to do with louse eggs. Nits is from the Latin word nitere, to shine. When it's turned off, a screen is black and emits zero nits. If you're old enough to remember TVs with those big cathode ray tubes inside, those had a peak brightness of about 100 nits. Apple's new display can shine at 1,000 nits continuously. Now, 1,000 nits isn't so bright that you'll have to wear shades, but it is about five times brighter than what we're used to on a typical desktop monitor. That kind of brightness is hard to sustain because all the light in an LCD screen comes from light-emitting diodes, or LEDs, and those LEDs also emit heat. And if you don't find a way to regulate all that heat, the screen will burn out. 
Apple says it's come up with two new ways to deal with that. First, they put a special computer chip into the screen called a timing controller. Its job is to analyze the incoming picture signal and turn the LEDs up in areas where more brightness is needed and turn them down or even turn them off in areas that should be darker. This is a content-based um, optical engine. That's Vincent Gu. He's a display engineer who led one of the teams that designed the Pro Display XDR. So essentially, we have an LED area behind the display. So everywhere, anywhere we want the display to be display at black content, we simply turn the LED off. So essentially, there's no light out. So that's why how we achieve the true black. That's also how Apple keeps the display from generating excess heat. Second, there's a new heat sink system on the back of the display. It's a lattice full of these intricately carved holes. It looks sort of like a cheese grater from the kitchen of an alien ship. And it's designed to carry the heat away. I talked with Colleen Novielli the day after her WWDC keynote presentation. And here's how she describes the whole brightness thing. Maintaining 1,000 nits of full screen brightness um, is something that, you know, I said uh, fairly casually on the stage yesterday, and definitely, this is a huge engineering accomplishment. Um, so the design of the efficient LEDs, um, which uh, he mentioned the algorithm that's, that's um, modulating and making sure that the light efficiency and the heat being generated is only when needed, and then the heat sink working in the back to double the surface area and cool um, the LEDs allowed us to have this incredible innovation of a thousand nits of, of full screen brightness. Now, when your screen can get very bright or very dark, you naturally end up with what's called a high contrast ratio, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's the ratio of the luminance of the brightest whites to the luminance of the darkest blacks. A movie theater screen might have a contrast ratio of about 500 to 1. A typical desktop monitor has a ratio of about 1,000 to 1. But Apple's new display has a contrast ratio of a million to 1. That's like the brightness of a piece of white paper in sunlight, compared to the same piece of paper in moonlight. Now, a high contrast ratio is one of the elements of what's called high dynamic range or HDR. A lot of movies and TV shows these days are shot in HDR format, so they have darker blacks and brighter highlights. But HDR isn't just about a high contrast ratio. It goes hand in hand with something called a wider color gamut. In other words, HDR screens have more colors. And that spells No, I'm not saying that they can show new colors that aren't on the visible spectrum. We're still stuck with good old Roy G. Biv. But in a wide color gamut video signal, there's just more information to specify the color of each pixel. And those colors reach across more of the palette of colors that humans can see in the real world. So greens can be greener, blues can be bluer, reds can be redder, and there can be more shades in between. My old HDTV can show about 16 million colors but most HDR sets can show a billion colors. And video experts say that if you want an image that really pops, HDR and its wide color gamut are even more important than the pixel count. And wider colored gamuts and HDR fall into the category of better pixels, not, not more pixels, but making the pixels uh, truer to life, uh, making them pop. Now, as you may have guessed, Apple's display has both a wide color gamut and an extremely high contrast ratio and dynamic range which is how they ended up calling it the Pro Display XDR for extreme dynamic range. And Colleen Novielli says that could be useful in all sorts of professions where visual data is important. 
I mean, not just in film production, but in fields like radiology. So you're able to see that brightness and the contrast and all the details in between. That's really what, you know, dynamic range is about. Um, and sometimes when you're viewing a file like, um, you know, an X-ray or, or um, a CAT scan, those details in between are the things that are going to be able to save lives. And so anything, this could apply to really any profession where, you know, I, I just want to see all the data that I have in this image, this photo, and this video. Um, and so it's going to be compelling across the board in that sense. Okay, so you can see why professionals would care about things like nits and color gamuts and heat sinks. But how does all that stuff matter to you, Mr. or Ms. Average Consumer? Isn't the display or the TV you already have good enough? Well, no, it isn't. And to show you why, all I have to do is take you back in time to the night of April 28th, 2019. When 18 million people tuned into HBO to watch the Starks, the Targaryens, and the Dothraki take on the army of the dead at the Battle of Winterfell. And nobody could see a damn thing. The episode is so dark. From the start of the episode, it's pitch black. So far, this Game of Thrones episode sounds amazing. It's too bad I can't see a damn thing. A lot of people are complaining that uh, it was poorly lit and too dark it yes. was kind of dark. What happened? I liked it, though. What? The question everyone on the internet was asking the next morning was how HBO could spend 11 weeks and a reported $20 million filming this decisive episode and then make it so dark that most viewers couldn't see it. The website Vulture called it, quote, one of the most expensive missed opportunities in the history of television, unquote. Well, here's the deal. It wasn't just the producer's fault. It's kind of our fault, too. Film and TV producers watch the final cuts of shows like Game of Thrones on reference monitors with a wide color gamut and a high contrast ratio. So to them, the Battle of Winterfell looked really great. Unfortunately, they didn't do enough to adjust the picture for everyone else, meaning people who don't have HDR TVs or home theaters. Here's Michael Isnardi again. Are you familiar with that uh, season eight of... Uh, Game of Thrones, people complained and how dark it was. Oh, yeah, it was scandalous. You, yeah, okay, all right. So there's an example that if you were in a home theater environment with, you know, um, calibrated monitors, etc., you would have seen all of that detail. But the ordinary consumer in their uh, living room, even at night, but with lots, plenty of, you know, lamps and stuff producing glare on the television set, they missed it. And, and yet the uh, people in post-production... They saw all of the detail, and if the HDR settings were, were set in your, your HDR television, you would have seen it as well. So there's an example in which there was a, a disconnect or maybe an assumption by the, the people who were producing that episode that people had, you know, the audience, the viewing audience had um, a large percentage of them had HDR sets and were in a, a, a good controlled viewing environment, but that was not the case, and that's, why, that, that's how the scandal erupted. So, to recap, the likely reason you couldn't see anything during the Battle of Winterfell was that your TV couldn't handle it, or you weren't watching under the right lighting conditions, or both. The takeaway here is that if you haven't upgraded to an HDR TV, Hollywood is leaving you behind. These days, the big studios and cable networks are using better technology to make their shows. And to fully appreciate those shows, the rest of us need better technology too. 
And that's where Apple comes back into the picture. What the Pro Display XDR could do is take the picture quality that used to be available only on reference monitors costing $40,000 or $50,000 and put it into the hands of every videographer or photographer or editor with an extra five grand to spend. That wider group of creators shapes almost everything we see in the media. And Apple's goal is to help them show the world more accurately. Colleen Novielli. Yes, I think that when you know we looked across how people are able to perceive um, their work, their um, photographs they're taking, their videos that they're taking, I think you know we thought that um, HDR as it is today really wasn't good enough um, for you know showing the beauty of the world that photographers are capturing, that videographers um, are capturing. And we wanted to make sure that people were able to see as much brightness, um, as much contrast as they could. Um, and I do, I, I certainly think that now, um, you know, once people have kind of seen the Pro Display XDR and it's, it's really much better reflecting the real world, um, I think that that bar is going to be set that much higher now. The fact that something like Apple's new display exists means that sooner or later, we're all going to want better monitors and TVs ourselves so that we can actually see the things that content creators are trying to show us. And one factor that'll help is that the new technologies inside the Pro Display XDR will inevitably make their way into consumer displays and TVs. Michael Isnardi says one of the first features to reach us could be a technique called picture optimization. Apple's display has sensors on the front and the back that can look at the room and assess the lighting conditions. And they are adjusting the, um, the contrast ratio and, and the color gamut to the type of illumination. I imagine not only the amount of illumination, but also the, the spectral information, you know, whether there's incandescent or, or cold cathode or fluorescent lighting in the room, will adjust the colors so that what you, you see in that environment is closer to the uh, intent of the original production. So I think TVs that automatically do picture optimization uh, by analyzing the, um, the ambient lighting and even sound uh, conditions to produce better sound is something that we're going to see uh, more of moving forward, and that's going to trickle down into consumer models. Now, you can certainly take everything I've been talking about and describe it as the workings of an unstoppable marketing machine. Makers of consumer products are always trying to convince us that there's something wrong with the thing we have, and that we'll only be happy once we replace it with a better thing. That's just the way our form of capitalism works, and Apple is the consummate consumer product company. But there's also a less jaded way to look at this. I think you can jump back about 80 years, to a time before video technology even existed, and find some insights in the work of the German cultural critic Walter Benjamin. Benjamin died in Spain in 1940 while trying to flee the Nazis. But five years earlier, he'd written his most famous essay. It's called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. The idea that Benjamin was one of the first to capture is that technology gives us new ways to see. To be specific, he said, The way in which human perception is organized, the medium in which it occurs, is conditioned not only by nature but by history. Now, Benjamin was particularly impressed by the new art of filmmaking. His heroes were directors like Charlie Chaplin, who, in his eyes, were conjuring a new kind of emotional physics. They were using the camera to put audiences inside the action. And they were using techniques like slow motion to slow down time, or time-lapse to speed it up, 
or jump cuts to teleport between locations. None of that had been imagined in visual storytelling before. The way Benjamin saw it, painters like the Cubists and the Dadaists had been trying for decades to show art connoisseurs that the world is, yes, beautiful, but also fragmented and a little absurd. But now, in movie theaters, filmmakers could train millions of people to see things from that same modern point of view. And if he brought Benjamin forward to 2019, I think he'd know exactly what's going on. The history of every art form has critical periods in which the particular form strains after effects which can be easily achieved only with a changed technical standard, that is to say, in a new art form. That's a key idea from Benjamin's essay, so let me play it again, a little slower. The history of every art form has critical periods in which the particular form strains after effects which can be easily achieved only with a changed technical standard, that is to say, in a new art form. One of these critical periods came in the late 1990s, with the switch to digital high-definition production in movies and television. And we got two new art forms out of that. In theaters, we got a new generation of blockbuster special effects movies, starting with the Star Wars prequels. And on TV screens, we got an explosion in long-form multi-season TV drama, starting with The Sopranos. What I'm arguing is that today, technical standards are changing once again. I don't know what Benjamin would make of Game of Thrones. He'd probably be amazed and appalled. But when you get screens with 4K or 8K resolution and high contrast ratios and wider color gamuts, you get the opportunity to try new effects and you could end up with a new art form. That's the real meaning of what device makers like Apple are up to. And I'm sorry to tell you, but that's why your old monitor and your old TV just aren't good enough. Soonish is written and produced by me, Wade Rausch. Our theme is by Graham Gordon Ramsey. All additional music is from the creative geniuses at Title Card Music and Sound in Boston. With a little boost from Stephen Sondheim, Timbuk3, and They Might Be Giants. To learn more about all of the people and ideas in this episode, you must go to our website, soonishpodcast.org. And here's a reminder for you. If you like Soonish, you'll also like my monthly column in Scientific American Magazine. You need a subscription to read it, but hey, it's only 35 bucks a year which is a sweet deal considering the magazine's extremely high IDI count. That's ideas per inch, of course. Check it out at scientificamerican.com. Soonish is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-based collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. And this month, I recommend that you listen to the latest episode of Culture Hustlers from Lucas Spivey. Lucas asks why so many art schools fail to get students ready for life in the real world where they're also going to have to understand money and business. The faculty decide what they teach and what they don't want to teach. And they want to teach techniques and concepts, but they definitely don't want to talk about business or money or marketing or legal or intellectual property or finance or any of that. It's a religious battle at this point. Religious. Teaching business to creators would be like losing your religion. Check out that episode now at culturehustlers.com. Speaking of money and business, this show would not be possible without contributions from our listeners. Special thanks to my top supporters on Patreon. Kent Rasmussen, Celia Ramsey, Paul and Patricia Rausch, Jamie Rausch, Lucia and Warren Prosperi, Victor and Ruth McElhaney, Andy Racina, Steve Morantz, 
Elizabeth Blanche, Chuck and Gail Mandeville, Ellen Lienz, Mark Pulaski, and Graham Ramsey. You too can support the show by signing up to make a per-episode donation at patreon.com soonish. And if you pledge $10 or more per episode, I'll send you the Soonish coffee mug. It's got our logo on one side and our motto on the other. So, along with your daily caffeine, you'll get a dose of informed optimism. I'd like to give a special shout-out to all the folks who sent me notes about this episode, including Kip Clark, Charles Gustine, Michael Isnardi, Ellen Leance, Mark Polofsky, and Joel Roston. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with a new episode soonish. <laughs>